crime in me. I've diagnosed some people. I think it's been pretty accurate. Definitely done my fair share of psychiatry work. I've prescribed a few pills, you know. Crime in me. We are in no way responsible for the things that come out of our mouths. We are not experts, although we may claim to be, so don't take anything that we say too literally. We are not laughing at the crimes, we are laughing at each, each other! other. <laughs> okay. Alright, welcome to another week of Criminy. We're your hosts. Angela. And Matt. Yeah. And uh, Angela, take off your bracelets and all your jingly oh, paraphernalia. Every time, what is wrong <laughs> with me? Every time, God, they're just like an appendage at this point. I don't even remember they're on. Yeah, just don't know I have them. There we go. Okay, so uh, yeah, welcome to another week. Mine is like decent. It's not nearly as long as last week's, which was a real bummer of an episode. What are you adjusting and clicking and adjusting and just making I'm all this noise? <laughs> I can't edit the clicking and adjusting when you're doing okay, it while you're okay. speaking. Okay. I was just trying to cover it up with my voice. Not working. <laughs> making it worse. It's making it worse. Okay. <laughs> well, let's um let's start our distraction for this week from the world ending, which <laughs> Yes, uh, California is on fire. There is smoke everywhere, and I'm sure it's great for our lungs. We were told, uh, so at work, we aren't allowed to eat or drink in the building because of corona, but (laughs) the air is so bad that, like, we got a letter or an email from our CEO being like, so it sucks that we can't eat inside. I guess you just have to eat your lunch really fast outside and then have oh, the God. rest of your break inside. So, you know, try not to get the ashes that are falling from the sky in your sandwich while you eat as fast as you can and then have to come inside and wear your mask and you can't drink inside now. It's a little ridiculous. You can't drink inside? No, so the new rule is you can't even drink water inside. You have to That's take it outside healthy. because you can't, you know, remove your mask inside, even though, like, originally it was just do it a- away from people. Yeah. Obviously. But no. Yeah. So, yeah, because people need their sports gear and uh, can't breathe inside, can't breathe outside. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> So, well, man, at least you're anyway. gonna have like a really sexy, raspy voice. Yeah, my good. sexy, raspy voice. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, audience, I didn't want to turn everyone on. I'm gonna uh, take that raspy, sexy voice outside. <laughs> yeah, take it outside, please. Yeah, don't want to turn on too many of our listeners. <laughs> like that blue station that mom <laughs> listens to <laughs> uh oh the um blues from the delta yeah 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 <laughs> the crossroads yeah the yeah crossroads mm-hmm. so okay don't know, well not trying to excite everyone <laughs> anyway enough of that yeah let's get to our uh what is stories. this week 18 
of so, us telling y'all some stories. Oh, you're really, <laughs> you're really living it up down there. Huh? <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, so this week I chose one that does not involve murder because I was <gasps> so depressed about life. <laughs> Wow. The last one was really bad. So, sorry if you're all tuning in for murder, but this is not that Don't story. worry. I got you covered. Oh, God. Oh, no. <laughs> it's still tragic if you love books. Books? Or, what is this, a book-burning tragedy? Or, uh, like, history and things, historically significant things. Uh-oh. Okay. So, I got my information from the Smithsonian Mag... And there were, like, two really good articles from there, and then from Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, and then every other article said the exact same things that these sources said, so I didn't include any of them. There's just, okay. like, more of the same. Okay. So, if you want more information, just read the articles that just reiterate everything over and over again. <laughs> okay. So, here we go. The Oliver Room is the home of the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh's rare book collection and archives. Greg Pryor was the manager of the room, originally from Oakland. So there are different articles that said from Oakland. I wasn't sure if it's Oakland, California, or if there's like an Oakland, Pennsylvania. I don't know, but I thought that was interesting Hmm. if it's California. I don't know. It just said Oakland. Yeah, it just said Oakland. He graduated from Duquesnets. What are you saying? (laughs) Duquesne. Duquesne. I knew I was going to stumble over that. Duquesne University with an MA in European history. And then he got a job in the library's Pennsylvania room. He was pursuing a library science degree at the University of Pittsburgh with an emphasis on archives management. Hmm. He was hired in 1991, and then he began to oversee the Oliver Room after it was finished being created in 1992. And he helped design the room's Defense in depth, which is something that people use, so I guess. I've never like, heard of it before. This whole is a whole building of like archived material and books. It's a library. Okay, people can check this stuff out, or is this AKA just... a library. <laughs> well, I'm like, I'm picturing like ancient one of a kind books that are like behind yeah. glass. Yeah. So originally it was just like an open library, basically, and they probably had the, uh, what's it called when. The, like the reference material where you can look at it in the library, but you can't check it out of okay. library. Yeah. And then he got hired, and I don't know how instrumental he was in being like, hey, we need to actually put the really special stuff in a room that we can monitor better right. and like enclose it so that it like keeps the materials safe. Uh-huh. So he helped design the defense in depth or the protection of the room. Okay. He also set up the inside of the room to keep the books in optimal condition. They blocked the windows, mm-hmm. and that helped, like, get control of the climate of the room and also, you know, not direct sunlight and all that. Right. They replaced the wooden shelves with metal ones because wood can leach acid into the books. Ooh, okay. Fascinating. And they also upgraded the security system. So they hired some people to, like, give them advice on how to, like, best keep these materials. And he mm. also, since he, you know, went to school for library stuff library school that library school i just want to protect books it's very specific <laughs> i mean i would that'd be a fun job just like sitting and smelling old book mites all day 
Mm. Mm, I love that smell. (laughs) I do too. So there was a single point of entry and only a few people had keys to the room. They also had limited daytime hours and all the guests had to sign in and leave a personal item in a locker outside. So they had to leave their like jackets and bags and everything outside. There was also constant camera surveillance and Greg Pryor made sure to place himself and his desk so that he kind of had like a bird's eye view on the whole room. So he knew what was happening. He could watch everyone as they're like looking through the materials. And when a person was finished looking at the book, they would give it to him and he would inspect it to make sure that everything was like okay with it. Okay. They didn't do anything sketchy with these books. Takes his books seriously. Security was super tight. Then this, this one article said there are two types of people who go into special collections rooms. There are scholars and there are people who just want to see something interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you ever seen an old book? <laughs> Come on down. I know where they keep a whole heap of them. <laughs> so everything seemed fine in the room of old books and archives. And in the fall of 2016, the library officials decided to audit the collection, and they hired Paul Mall art advisors Paul to do the appraisal. Paul Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait, like Paul Mall? Like cigarettes? I don't I mean, Paul Mall art advisors is like a thing. Maybe Paul Maybe? Mall is a last name. <laughs> well, yeah. It, I don't know. Yeah, well, it's P-A-L-L. M-A-L-L. Pal Mal. Pal Mal Art Advisors. <laughs> so the room hadn't been audited uh, since 1991 when Pryor was hired. And then he uh, put together like a list of all the materials that were going to go into the room. Hmm. So they haven't, no one's checked it since then because he's kept such good security and everything. So when the library administration was discussing the possibility of an appraisal of the Oliver Room, he argued against it. His colleagues chalked it up to his general obstinacy against having others in his domain, an obstinacy that one librarian noted had grown increasingly pronounced as the years ticked by. So he's just Still, this old curmudgeon that only likes books and not people, and he's like, and he don't touch my books too in much. In his room. <laughs> yeah. You can only look at them from the hours of 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. I'm sure they were like smaller hours though, right? Yeah, that seems way too lo- too many yeah, that's pe- like people a lot. touching his books. He probably had like a lunch break too, I would assume. Shut down the room. Yeah, anytime yeah. he left. Yeah. Probably had like a little he, his chair was probably a toilet so that he never had to leave. Ew. <laughs> no, not around the books. I could damage the books. Oh, that's well, maybe like his lower half was in like Okay, a... look. It would smell so bad. <laughs> no, in there. listen, you didn't listen oh, okay. to my Sorry. his Sorry. lower half. Was in some kind of, his lower half was in some kind of, like, chamber that would, like, Uh suction onto his body, and then it would, like, suck away, like, there was, it couldn't get into the room. It was its own duty chamber. (laughs) (laughs) I hate it. That's disgusting. Okay. So, basically, (laughs) Uh with or without him, they were going to, they were going to do the audit. Okay. So Carrie Lee Jeffrey and Christiana Scavuzzo began their audit on April 3rd, 2017. The library's administration noticed that some things were missing. Uh-oh. Using the 1991 inventory as a guide, 
Within hours, they knew something was wrong. Uh Uh-oh. Jeffrey was looking for Thomas McKenney and James Hall's History of the Indian Tribes of North America. This landmark work... So I took a lot of this, like, verbatim. Yep. This landmark work included 120 hand-colored lithographs. The results of a project that began in 1821 with McKenney's attempt to document in full color the dress and spiritual practices of Native Americans who had visited Washington, D.C. to arrange treaties with the government, which sounds amazing. Like, this would be the coolest book. The three-volume set of folios produced between... So, (laughs) in this story, I'm either going to pretend to be, like, super knowledgeable about art and books, or I'm going to really let you know that I have no idea what the fuck these are. Okay, well, I'm not going to edit that out, so... Okay, no, that's fine. Go ahead. (laughs) I'm not... I don't know any of those. Okay. We know nothing about anything. (laughs) We just read things and reread them back to each other. Yeah. And sometimes we like to pretend that we know things, and sometimes we're just going to be blatant about it. I don't know what I'm talking about. So anyway, the (laughs) lithographs sound cool. I know what a lithograph is, so that sounds cool. So the three-volume set of folios produced between 1836 and 1844 is large and gorgeous and would be a highlight in any collection. But Uh the Carnegie Library's version had been hidden on a top shelf at the end of a row. This amazing highlight in any collection was hidden for some reason well when Jeffrey i mean if it's that good why... he doesn't want to share it it's special <laughs> well when jeffrey discovered why her stomach dropped <clears throat> once a plump book Wait, filled with plates jeffrey's a woman yeah her last name is jeffrey it's oh. carrie lee jeffrey okay. this way I get well i usually like to change it to their first names because yeah. last names are hard but i just did not do a lot of work this week <laughs> That's fine. Took a bunch of Just stuff. gotta double check. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so she would recall the sides had caved into the on themselves. <gasps> All those stunning illustrations had been cut from the binding. Cut. Yeah, and the more they looked, the more they noticed was gone. <gasps> The appraisers discovered that many of the invaluable books with illustrations or maps had been ransacked. <gasps> John. Ogilby's America, one of the greatest illustrated English works about the New World, printed in London in 1671, had contained 51 plates and maps. They were gone. (gasps) All 51. Why why would they just cut them out? Why wouldn't they just take the whole book? A copy of Ptolemy's groundbreaking La Geographia, printed in 1548, had survived intact for over 400 years. Holy but shit. now all of its maps were missing. What? Uh-huh. Of an 18-volume set of Giovanni Prianisi's extremely rare etchings printed between 1748 and 1807, the assessors noted dryly, the only parts of this asset located during on-site inspection was its bindings. The contents have evidently been removed from the bindings and the appraiser is taking the extraordinary assumption that they have been removed from the premises. The replacement value for the, for the Pyrenesis, Pyrenesis alone was $600,000. Okay. We're going to get into more. Okay. So now for a brief. I have so many questions, but okay. I know. Here's a brief vocab lesson. 
Ooh. An incunable. Incunable. Do you know what an incunable is? I had never seen this word before in my life. Mm, incunable. So incunable. I'm gonna just try. I'm just gonna pick the word apart. Use and I'm the gonna context say clues. Incunable. Oh, no. <laughs> incu is like incubate. So I would uh-huh. say incunable is maybe like some kind of temperature control to keep the books fresh. Oh, well, that would be cool. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. What now, is it? No, it's an old, rare, and historically significant book, pamphlet, or broadside printed uh. at the dawn of European movable type between 1450 and 1500. So I don't know what a broadside is. And there it's like I think when they like used to move the like letters. Yeah, around, when you have you know? the um, yeah. oh gosh, what's it called? I took a class where you I know where you could uh, print with the printing press and you yeah. had all the different yeah, you had to oh, what oh, are they called? Cool. The little lead and they ran out of lead too, all the little letters yeah. and like different um dingbats, which are like the little weird oh, yeah. shaped things. Oh, that's why they have that font called dingbats. Yeah. Um, oh yeah and you line them up and then you have like these little block wooden blocks called furniture that you have to like <laughs> you have to put them all in like a puzzle so that it fits the press right. perfectly oh it's so it's, it's not so like cool. wiggle and stuff yeah yeah that looks looks fun that sounds fun it's cool <laughs> you were describing it with your hands so that's why i thought it looked fun it did okay. look fun it i'm did italian <laughs> that's why i describe things with my hands that's right <laughs> so so from this is all from 1450 to 1500. So these are like fucking old, right? Wow, yeah. Incunables are super valuable and very important. So a thief that wanted to get away with stealing from a library would not take one. The thief in this story stole 10. <gasps> Other super valuable items in the Oliver room were maps, more specifically maps found in the Theatrum Orbis Terrarum, which is more commonly known. Here, I'll give you the common name. Uh The Blau Atlas. Blau Atlas. Blau Atlas. Now you know what I'm talking about? Of course. Everyone knows what Blau Atlas Atlas is. (laughs) It's like an atlas of maps made with ink blots, and you have to try and... (laughs) Guess through, yeah, what what the ink blot makes you feel, which continent right. they are describing. Exactly. It's very confusing. You wouldn't understand. Yes. No, no, no. <laughs> they couldn't even say the name, so. <laughs> the collection in the Oliver Room was printed in 1644. It was a three-volume set made up of 276 hand-colored lithographs. Wow. All 276 maps were missing. <gasps> All of them. 276 hand-painted lithographed maps. Yes. Yeah. Holy yeah. ouch. From 1644. Oh. Yeah. The Carnegie Collection also had 40 volumes of photogravure. Photogravure. You know what that is? I don't know that. <laughs> I should have looked this stuff up. I'm sure it's like a lot cooler than what I'm making it sound. <laughs> Prints of, in- of indigenous Americans created by Edward Curtis in the first decades of the 20th century. 
They were extremely rare and valuable. Only 272 sets were created. And in 2012, one set was sold for $2.8 million. Yeah, I mean, they're one of a kind, based almost one of a kind. Mm-hmm. And hand, the... like, oh, man. Okay. Okay. The Carnegie, Carnegie, ugh, the Carnegie Collection had around 1,500 photogravure plates. I really wish you would oh, say it more appropriately. This like, is what they are. <laughs> they are, what are illustrations they? made apart from a book and then inserted into it. Ah. That's what a photogravure plate is. So the Carnegie Collection had around 1,500, and they had been cut and removed from their bindings, Ugh. except for a few scattered throughout of unremarkable subjects. <laughs> Which is a judgment call, obviously. So, but. like, people going in to look at these rare things, mm-hmm. they're not flipping through the ones with just holes in them, I'm guessing. Well, the one, the one book with the rare lithographs of, like, the indigenous American Right, people. it was, like, on the top was, shelf. was, like, way up right. in the corner. Yeah. So I'm guessing, so... like, the ones that he's cutting from are yeah. put on, like, high shelves or in areas where people aren't looking. Like, because if right. people would... Yeah. If people for years were <laughs> like, going in there... through, there's, there's like, a there's hole. just a hole cut like, out. Oh. Like, huh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's, like, this huge book where it's, yeah. like, three pages. You're, like, uh... Ah, interesting. <laughs> oh, very nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so cool (laughs) so this was just the tip of the iceberg well it did say that people would go to see things interesting that's exactly right so So a book with holes holes, in it yeah like huh never seen a book like this before i guess books were made differently back then (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of like tv where you hold the hole up to like your surroundings and look through it yeah it's kind of like that yeah you make your own story yeah, make your own book. I did the binding, you Choose do the rest. Choose your own adventure. That's right. <laughs> so, the thief stole nearly everything of value. He took the oldest book in the collection, which was a collection of sermons printed in 1473. Holy shit, that's old. He took the most recognizable book, which was a first edition of Isaac Newton's 98. Wow. The most valuable book was a German version of Maximilian, Prince of Weeds. Prince Wides. of Weeds? Wides? Wide Weeds. Wades? Wade, <laughs> Wade. Wide Wading Weeds. Uh, the German version of Maximilian. Then there was Prince of we- Wides. Uh-huh. And travels in the interior of North America, which was valued at $1.2 million. He took a first edition of The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, a letter written by William Jennings Bryan, and a rare copy of Elizabeth Cady Stanton's 1898 memoir, Eight Years and More, Reminiscences 1815-1897. He stole a first edition of a book written by John Adams, who is the second president of the United States, and a book signed by Thomas Jefferson, who is also one of the presidents. Where is he putting all these? Is he just selling them, or what is he? Where is he putting them all? We'll get that. He took the first English edition of Giovanni Boccaccio's. Decam- Decamaran? Decamaran? Deca- 
Decameron. Decameron. <laughs> Decameron? Print, print, printed in London in 1620. Oh. And the first edition of George Eliot's Silas Marner, printed in the same city 241 years later. From John James Audubon's 1851 to 1854, Quadrupedes of North America, he stole 108 of the 155 hand-colored lithographs. Everywhere they look, they found things missing. They brought their investigation to the head of the preservation department, Jacqueline Mignogna. (laughs) Mignogna. Mignogna. Oh. <laughs> this loses effectiveness because I can't say names. It's hard. I know, it's really hard. She was so overwhelmed by the losses that she went to her office and cried. Wow. I mean, yeah. at that point, it's like, we've entrusted you for years, and you set up this yes. whole system of, like, protecting the books, so yeah, this is really out of character from their perspective like why would yeah. you even go into this whole mess of making everything super super protective if you're just going to yeah. be taking them out of this environment you took all the most valuable things not like, to mention you just cut pages out yeah you just like, destroyed what? like yeah I, yeah you just feel so sick i'm very confused right now i thought it you was loved the most these ex- books more than anything it was the most extensive theft from an american library in at least a century which i feel like who, sto- who steals who from a library? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, confession time. I remember when I was little Uh-oh. and we were, um, we were in, well, it was inadvertent. I didn't know how libraries worked. So we were like in campfire boys and girls and we went to the yeah. library to like learn about libraries. And we like went yeah. in and we each got to pick a book out because we each got our <laughs> own, own library card and we each got to yeah. pick a book out and check them out. And I checked out this book and I didn't. I'd never like what we never went to the library except for like our school library. So right. I just never returned to return the book. Your fines are probably so <laughs> outrageous at this point. You probably like, owe them like tens of thousands of dollars. Seven years old. I don't even remember what book it was. I don't even think I read the book because I don't like <laughs> reading books. <laughs> oh my God. So. I've got a library of fine debt in the hundreds of thousands. Like, huge. <laughs> you should never show your face in the library ever again. Yeah, it was the Sacramento Public Library. Oh. <laughs> I do love a good library, actually. I need to go more often. Well, I our library I gotta find my open. library card. But my first, like, my first experiences of the library were at school, where the yeah. librarian was terrifying. You had, like, two <laughs> minutes to choose a book. You had to choose a book. I never knew what I was getting into, so I just, like, grabbed one, and then I was so stressed about returning it, so I didn't owe, like, you know, a nickel every day, that I just, like, leave it in my backpack so I'd have it for library day the next week. It was so stressful. Wow. I'm pretty sure the yeah. only books I ever checked out of the library were, like, I Spy books. <laughs> and yeah, and like that one really big coffee table book about cats. It was like it was like a thousand <laughs> different cats, and I would check that one out. <laughs> I think those were the only ones I would ever check out. <laughs> I checked out like a horoscope one one time of like they had like every zodiac sign, so uh-huh. I like picked my zodiac sign. I think I checked that one out like a couple weeks, and then uh, yeah, with I spy like people would always circle them, so it like wasn't fun. Oh. 
I don't and then it was like stressful. Circled. And then I, remember they had the <laughs> she had like the one spinny thing where it had like all the goosebumps books. Oh yeah. 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 Anyway, I was too stressed to even open the books. So I was so afraid I was going to leave it at home because I had such <laughs> bad anxiety. <laughs> I didn't want to like be late with my library books. You just like check it out and then two minutes later return it. <laughs> yeah, she was intense. It was so intense. Books. Anyway, as an adult, though, I do like libraries. The books. Mrs. Gill and her books, yeah. as she would say. Yeah. Book. <laughs> Okay, back to this tragedy. I mean, yours was pretty tragic, and you should feel very guilty about it. (laughs) You should probably try and find that book. Oh, God. I don't even know what it was. (laughs) Oh, my God. Now I want you to go to the library and see if they have, like, a record of how much you owe. (laughs) Also, everyone in the United States, please visit your local libraries. Like, they depend on us. The fact that we have a place where you can get free books and movies and video games is fucking awesome. So, visit your libraries. (laughs) <laughs> and see if they have like an old shit room because that sounds cool a shit room Looking you something say? interesting old stuff ah the old interesting room the old interesting room go check it out <laughs> okay so biggest theft okay library spokesperson susan suzanne thines said the culprit was likely someone familiar with the library's rare books room who had stolen items over an extended period of time. Hmm, let's see. The Mm. only person that's been in there this entire time who personally gets the books handed back to him and inspects them. Hmm. So on April 7th, only five days after the appraisers had begun their inquiry, Jeffrey and Scavuzzo met with the library's director, Mary Frances Cooper, and two other administrators, and detailed what they had found. The next phase of their analysis would have a more pessimistic focus. Now they would try to determine just how far the collection's value had fallen. On April 11th, a Tuesday, (laughs) Cooper had the lock of the Oliver room change. Greg Pryor was not given a key. (gasps) He's going to be pissed. Uh-oh. In short, he took nearly everything he could get his hands on, and he did it with impunity for close to 25 years. Nobody checked on him in 25 years. Because <laughs> like I said, he's. it sounded like he had it all on lockdown. Like he was right. looking out for the books. He cared about the books. He got them on metal shelves. He made the, yeah. the regulations different. He personally checked each book after someone else touched it to make sure yeah. it was pristine Why would you think he was stealing books? So this amounted to around 320 documents, totaling somewhere around $8 million. Oh, my God. So Pryor and his wife, who worked as a children's librarian, hardly had an opulent lifestyle. The couple lived in a modest apartment crowded with books. They had four children, all of whom attended private schools. St. Edmund's Academy, the Ellis School, and Uh Duquesne University. (laughs) You were going to mess it up again. Really intimidated. I got Duquesne. I don't know why. It's like too many U's and there's like a Q. It's like confusing. Better than I would have (laughs) done. So. All indications. Well, the sad thing is I like practice these words and then as soon as I see them, I get like super stressed and trip over them. Yeah. And then it's like worse than than ever. Oh, it's okay. like when you had to read aloud in elementary school. Yes. And I'm dyslexic, and so like 
half the time my brain would just fuzz out all the words and I couldn't see anything that I was reading and then oh. you get even more stressed out yeah and then all the, the words are transposing and oh it's bad and then you have the kids in class who like read super fast just to like dicks rub it in yeah and then and you're then not paying attention and you're like to, oh god <laughs> yeah you're not paying attention to what they're saying because you're like counting down the people that it's going to take to get to you when yeah. it's your turn to read the paragraph then you gotta yeah. practice the paragraph in your head or oh. they're like reading so fast that they're not even breathing and like, oh. like what they're saying doesn't make sense because they don't stop at the periods and you're just like i can't even follow what you're saying right now this is insane <laughs> slow the fuck down slow it down so, all suggestions, I mean, uh-huh. God, speaking of not reading. <laughs> How many suggestions were there? <laughs> all indications uh, suggested uh-huh. that he was perpetrating his crimes not to get rich, but rather to stay afloat. For example, in the fall of 2015, Pryor wrote an email to the Ellis School asking for an extension on tuition payments. Mm -hmm. He said, I'm trying to juggle tuition payments for four kids. A few weeks later, he asked Duquesne officials to lift a hold on accounts assigned to two of his children since he had made overdue tuition. He had made overdue tuition payments. Okay, so Mm. then he like they froze their accounts or whatever until he could pay up. In February of 2016, Pryor asked his landlord for an extension, falsely claiming his wife had missed work because of a heart attack. Oh. <laughs> the rent was past due for four months at that point. Ooh. And that's like, yeah. that's a lot of money stacked up on one payment. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Prior received 56 checks totaling $117,700 between January 10th and 2010 and September 2017. Oh, okay. During a similar stretch of time, he'd made cash deposits totaling $17,000. So this collection huh. is worth over $8 Millions. million. Yeah. And he's gotten a little more than $100,000. Uh, well, I mean, mm. he obviously he can't sell it to people that are well-known or whatever because they would know okay this is stolen you're selling me pages out of the book right and rare book collectors and all of that like and like libraries and stuff like that like they want to make sure like they're like art yeah, collectors exactly you, know? you want to make sure it's of like it's legit so that when you sell like, it yeah yeah because you're gonna want documentation that it's real and like so that when you have it in your collection you know okay that piece of artwork right there is worth x amount of money so in the future i know how right. much you know Right. So Pryor lived close enough to the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh that he could walk to work in 15 minutes. Nice. One route took him past the famous blue edifice of the Caliban Bookshop, one of the city's best known cultural spots. Mm. The store was founded in 1991 by a Pittsburgher. Uh, Pittsburgher. <laughs> <laughs> Named John Shulman. Shulman started his bookselling business in the 1980s, working out of a Pittsburgh apartment. Gregarious and diligent, he acquired the sort of status that comes from years of reputable work in the profession. He was a member of the Antiquarian Booksellers Association of America, serving on its board of governors for the Mid-Atlantic Chapter, 
He was also an appraiser for religious institutions, including the University of Pittsburgh, Carnegie Mellon University, and Penn State. After decades selling rare books, he was familiar to most in the business and even somewhat well-known outside of it, thanks to an appearance on Antiques Roadshow. He was PBS <gasps> famous. Oh, I missed oh. that show. Is that show still on? I love that. Yeah. Dude, it's so good. I love it. <laughs> so naturally, Pryor would take what he wanted from the Oliver Room and walk it out of the library. Mm-hmm. He hid illustrated pages or plates in manila envelopes. <gasps> manila envelopes. <laughs> rolled up larger items or simply carried books out of the library. He then delivered the items to the bookseller John Shulman, who subsequently resold them to unsuspecting clients. I mean, so really, he can who's going to take stuff out of the library? Yeah, who's going to question him? Who's right, gonna, drop it off at the bookstore. First of all, you're leaving a library with books. Duh. You're, <laughs> you're like, no one's going to question you. And yeah. you work there. Yeah. People, you have, quote unquote, authority there or whatever, because people yeah. know you. They trust you. So they're not going to think twice. They're just going to be like, all right, have a nice day. See you later. Well, also, he's like rolling them up and putting uh-huh. them in a bag or like, you know, yep. an, an envelope, like a big deal, you mm-hmm. know? No one's going to, yeah, stop him. And they're not going to have, like, little sensors or anything because he's, right. like, cutting them all out of the books. Right. And I doubt they put the sensors on, like, the really good stuff. You don't want to ruin it, you know? Yeah, I can't oh, imagine you would be, like, cutting no books up to slip. I uh. oh. Well, especially if you assume you have someone that works there in the room getting the Who books back. Has, like, tight, tight security. Yeah. Yeah. So... Shulman would process the rare and antiquarian materials like those he got from any other source. He would describe an individual book in ways people in the market would understand, and depending on the quality of an item listed on his website. But with the items Pryor brought, there was an added step. Hmm. Pryor stated, I should have never done this. I loved that room my whole working life, and greed came over me. I did it, but Shulman spurred me on. Mm. Blame someone else. Yeah. Pryor alleged that Shulman goaded him on and that Shulman made significantly more money than he did in the sale of the items from the Oliver Room, which honestly, he probably made a whole lot more. Yeah. So when a book of value or importance is acquired by a library, the institution marks it using one of several different kinds of stamp, ink, emboss, or perforation. These marks, which state the name of the library, are meant to do two things. They identify the rightful owner and destroy the value of the book for resale. Uh-huh. Interesting. Huh. Most major... <laughs> I read that like I read it the first time. <laughs> <laughs> huh. I didn't know that. <laughs> Who put that info in my page? <laughs> Who wrote this? Okay. Most major special collections like the Oliver Room also adhere a book plate to the inside front cover. Hmm. So... That's part of the reason why he's like cutting them out is because they could be detected. They're stamped so that you can't be resold. And then the ones that he like took the whole book out, he did something else. So to sell such a heavily marked book, a typical thief would have to tear, cut and bleach away this evidence. Hmm. If he was not careful, he would destroy it in the process. So Shulman found another way to ready a stolen book for sale using materials he kept at his store Whenever he got a Carnegie book from from Pryor, 
he or one of his employees pressed a small red stamp, bright as lipstick, (laughs) on the bottom of the book plate. It pronounced the book withdrawn from the library. That mark was to counteract the others. Huh. So he just he just stamped it. Made his own stamp. He's like, we're all good. <laughs> I'll just yeah. can't. I'll just double stamp your stamp. Yeah, double stamp your triple stamp. N- double stampies no erases. Yeah, that's exactly what he did. You can't triple stamp a double stamp. What's that from? Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> oh, that's right. I can't double. <laughs> Double stamp a triple stamp. Double stamp, you know, erases. Okay. Shulman lived by Dumb and Dumber, clearly, with his double stamp, you know, erases. He was a constant presence at the major book fairs, seemed as rock solid as any bookseller in the business, all of which made him the perfect, perfect, uh, person for prior to sell to Mm -hmm. the librarian could not risk approaching dealers or collectors directly with the types of books he was selling obviously and the internet would have exposed him the first time he tried to sell an incunable because they're fucking rare yeah prior simply could not have operated without shulman and shulman's good name like went far in the bookseller world and he couldn't have gained access to all those, like, fancy books without Pryor. Huh. So Shulman's attorney said in a written statement that, oh, wait, Mm-mm-mm. that he, oh, wait, I should have put this somewhere else. Sorry. Huh. Your computer doesn't hey. like that. I know, it didn't like that at all. You can't triple stamp a double stamp. Okay, sorry. This is why you proofread always, and I never do. Okay. Me either. Okay. I'm scared to see what I wrote. Right. (laughs) Okay, do, do, do. So, Pryor knew that the audit was coming six months before it did. He talked to Shulman about it, and the bookseller tried to help his supplier by emailing a number of possible explanations for why many of the items were missing. He's like, ooh, ooh, we better come up with a story. Mm-hmm. So he suggested that Pryor say that some of the items might be out for repair or oh. on loan. Yeah. You know how some of those books were snipped apart? It's okay. I was just repairing each page separately, so I That's just right. snipped them right out. To, uh, and then I was going to glue stick glue, them back yep. in. We got a bucket of paste in the back. <laughs> it's only had a few licks and chunks eaten out of it. Don't by worry, children. I tested it. It tastes fine. Paste approved. God, remember paste? It was so lumpy. It was just weird. I remember like putting paste, like putting the paste on with their with your yeah, uh, popsicle, popsicle stick, stick, and then you put the paper on top, and then I'd like try and smash down the, All lumps, the lumps. It looked yeah. awful. Yeah, yeah. What is paste? <laughs> don't know did our kindergarten teacher like make her own it was very lumpy i don't know i just remember vats of it and the popsicle sticks and the kids eating it yeah always the paste eaters (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. so he would get his paste and fix it himself (laughs) so he also urged uh, prior to create documents that would say that they were on loan or out for repair. And he also suggested saying the library's former director, who is now dead, 
had talked about selling off some of the Oliver Room's better books and mm-hmm. that he m- might have done so while Pryor was away on leave. Like, what a dick. He's uh, like, oh, the old director, he's dead. So you just say that he like snuck in while you were gone and tried well, to sell know, some books. He's dead, so he's not going to say he didn't do it. He can't defend right. himself. <laughs> right. What a slimy dude. <laughs> he also proposed emphasizing that the Oliver Room is fairly porous and accessible. Porous? And that uh, there's just have... huge pores in the walls that people can just climb through and take the like, books. They just like morph right into the room. What the hell? They is even Alex Mack it under the floor. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Turn into a they... silver puddle and go through. Yeah. Cracks. They, uh, oh, and that they have, there have been no doubt multiple opportunities for many different staff and visitors to enter the rooms without proper protocol, which mm, when you have that. a dude who's like, you know, gotten the security down to a T and then they're like, oh, you know, just say that you're like not a good security person and that people are coming and going all the fucking time and could steal easily. Like... Uh, yeah, doesn't he have a little perch that he sits on and watches yeah. everything all the time? He's perched all the time. Doesn't he have With that his, like, toilet that he poops in? Porta potty situation. <laughs> <laughs> He's like literally never left that room once in his life. Only to steal books and pay for his children's <laughs> tuition, and then he's right back in there. I just feel like if you can't afford like private school, then don't send your kids to private school, you know, or like get scholarships or. <laughs> You'd think that if four kids are at the same private school, the school would give them some kind of discount. They don't give very big discounts for things like that. Right, because God needs the money more than you. God needs it more than you. He really does. Yeah. He likes that makes the gold sense. and he the loves gold. properties. And... So, I mean, not that these were like Catholic, or one, well, one of them maybe was. You said Saint something. Like so Saint something, yeah. Gotta be Catholic. Okay. So when library administrators interviewed Pryor on April 18th, 2017, he told Cooper, the director, that he did leave catalogers, interns, and volunteers to work by themselves in the room. He added that maintenance workers, in particular some men who had done repairs on the roof, had access to the room. Ah, the roofer men. They love so a good as old if these book. roofers are like, mm, these <laughs> are definitely the valuable. Let me get some of these books and try and sell them. Like, yeah. yeah. And the interns, like, there's no way. There's or no vol- way they would like, have been left alone. A library volunteer. No. Also, you're like volunteering for a library. There's not, like you're not gonna go and steal a bunch of books. I don't know. Uh. Also, like, how often were they left alone? Like 200 or 340 times, or however many things you stole. Like. Yeah. They're just like walking out. They're having time to like slice these things out of these books hey. and then store them and take them out. It's absurd. It's so absurd. So in April, he was suspended from his job, and in June, he was fired, obviously. Pittsburgh police began a formal investigation in June. And on August, that reminds me of that Frasier episode where something was. Well, it was stolen, and then Martin's like, oh, why don't you report it to the the special department for fine arts or whatever? Yes. What was stolen? That was so funny. And he's like, can I speak to your fine arts department, please? They're <laughs> laughing at me. <laughs> but apparently the Pittsburgh police did have a department of fine arts. On August 24th, the Pittsburgh police fine arts division executed... Exec- executed. 
Executive I'm executed. Fetting. Executed search warrants at Pryor's home, the Caliban bookshop, and at a Caliban warehouse. Police questioned Pryor the same day, and it did not take long for him to come clean. When police went to the Caliban warehouse, they brought along Christiana Scavuzzo of Paul Mall Art Advisors. She found, among other items, 91 of the Edward Curtis prints and seven maps from the Blau Outlet. <laughs> Police also found the stamp that Shulman used to indicate the li- that the books he stole had been had been like taken from the library, and the library was like, "Chill with it." <laughs> Dozens. Of it literally, people... the stamp literally was like, "Yeah, the library's cool with it." <laughs> They didn't want this book anymore, so it's cool. (laughs) Dozens of people, private collectors, librarians, and rare book dealers received letters that August informing them that their books may have been stolen from the library. Yep. And they sent the books and documents to Allegheny County, where they have become part of a small but extremely valuable library under the supervision of the district attorney. So the DA got a good come up. They got, like, all Mm. those good, cool, interesting books and things. (laughs) Pryor pled guilty to theft and receiving stolen property, while Shulman pled guilty to receiving stolen property, theft by deception, and forgery. Mm. Shulman's attorney said in a written statement that in pleading guilty, he accepts responsibility for his association with books under circumstances whereby he should have known that the books had probably been stolen. (laughs) Like uh, creating a whole stamp to be like, not stolen. Uh... Yeah, yeah, right? (laughs) Obviously, he knew they were stolen. The guidelines for such crimes recommended a standard sentence of 9 to 16 months incarceration. 9 to 16 months for stealing for 25 years. Like these irreplaceable... Months. Irreplaceable lithographs. That's it. Months. Wow. Uh, So... So, yeah, there's, like, the standard sentence of 9 to 16 months and included two other possibilities, either an aggravated range of up to 25 months, up to 25 months incarceration, and a mitigated range that could include probation. Okay. (laughs) Much of what governor's sentencing and property crimes comes down to is the numbers. The Paul Mall art advisors spent months determining the replacement value for each item, Prior had destroyed or stolen outright, and they totaled more than $8 million. But even this number, they said, was inadequate since many items were irreplaceable, not available for purchase anywhere at any price. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And the director of the University of Pittsburgh Libraries, Cornelia Tancheva, wrote Uh that a rare book theft especially from a public library, is an egregious crime against the integrity of the cultural records and against the public good. It's a library for, like, everyone to go and enjoy for free. And this guy is, like, a real dick. Yeah. Both of them are. Well, and, I mean, I I agree culturally because it's, like, those are one-of-a-kind prints that that are from history. Yeah. And, like you said, that everyone should be able to enjoy because they're part of the public's history. Yes. Yeah, that's messed up. It's so messed up. Susan Tynes, 
Thines, a spokeswoman for the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh, who I mentioned before, called the thefts devastating. The shock, the anger, and the hurt we feel that individuals who are close to us, who are trusted by us, who are considered friends and colleagues to many of us at the library, would abuse the faith we had in them for personal gain, will be with us for a very long time. We are hopeful that the sentences given to these two individuals will reflect the significant damage done not only to Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh, but to the li- the literary community near and far. Mm. So the other thing yeah. they were talking about was the the collection that a library has, uh-huh. like somehow determines their funding and like how many people like come to visit the library also determines funding. So not only did they like lose out on all these like amazing pieces, but they're also losing out on visitors and they're losing out on funding. Huh. And like some of these, some of these pieces were like Carnegie had gotten them and like donated them. Some of them were like purchased specifically for the library. Like this whole is this whole thing. Wow. So more than two dozen people wrote letters asking the judge Alexander Brickett to impose stricter sentences. Still, Greg Pryor was sentenced to three years house arrest <coughs> and 12 years probation. And Shulman got four years house arrest and 12 years probation. Uh, Authorities recovered 42 of the lost items, just 42, 18 of which were heavily damaged from Shulman's bookshop warehouse during a nine-day search. So he didn't even take care of them. He just put them in his work, his, like, uh, warehouse, and they were just, like, all fucked up. Shit. Uh, CNN's Alex Snyder said another 14 titles were found on sale at Shulman's Caliban Bookshop, while 37 were spotted listed for sale on a Rare Books website. By the time the charges were filed in 2018, documents worth an estimated $1.2 million had either been located or identified as not actually missing. It remains unclear whether any of the other missing texts have since been found, according to Snyder. Damn. And that is one of the biggest library heists of all time. I mean, I literally never knew that there would have been any kind of library heist. Um, Yeah. But, I mean, what if you were someone that was like a rare book collector or something and you went into that bookshop and you were just like, oh, wow, they have whatever this super, super, super rare pieces and then you buy it not knowing because it's got the double stamp double stampy and you can't triple stamp a double stamp so you cannot it's official it seems legit yeah that's right you're like sick i'm gonna put this in my collection yeah and then you find out that it was stolen from this huge heist old lithographs of like indigenous culture like that should be something that people could go see and that yeah. What if those are the damaged ones? And that's a huge part of history that was lost because we've already like obliterated a ton. And of it's made it this culture. far. And then, yeah. Yeah. Like, what a bunch of dicks. Fuck. Yeah. The tossed salad and the scrambled egg. The tossed salad, a scrambled egg. The tossed salad. The tossed salad. And the scrambled egg. A scrambled egg. So a tossed salad is someone who clearly knows right from wrong and chooses to do wrong anyway, 
Right, so the tossed salad has more components. The person is able to com compartmentalize. And a scrambled egg is someone who can't tell right from wrong and they're just completely scrambled. Just one component, one track mind. They're all kinds of mixed up. There's no focus, they're disorganized. So these assholes are tossed salads. And the one didn't even get money out of it. Like, what, he got $100,000 for $8 million worth of, like, and some of that stuff was priceless. It was priceless. It's, like, right. fucking historical and irreplaceable. And now you who knows think, where it is? You would think, too, that, I mean, maybe he was just desperate or whatever, so he was just taking any kind of money. And he was like, oh, I know this person, and I can just get it right now and don't have to worry about finding someone to buy it. But I would yeah. assume someone with his library knowledge, I mean, he basically, like, you know, was a professional library guy. Yeah. And so he, he knew would know how much it's worth. Exactly how valuable. Because yeah. librarians piece was. are good researchers, especially right. if he's like an archivist and all that. He knows how old and how, like, yeah, rare these things exactly. are. Exactly. But he was just, like, so desperate, I guess, that he just didn't even care. And he was just like, that That was the only way he could sell them was through that dude. And maybe he was like, oh, man, all I got was like 8000 for this one thing worth a million. But at the and time, he's going to be like, like well, okay, I I'll need, take it. Like, I need 8000 for the tuition. Mm -hmm. So that'll mm -hmm. keep me good for a couple months or whatever it is. Yeah. Oh, man. How tragic. And then another article I read said that Shulman gave him like a list of what he wanted from the huh. Oliver Room. And then he went and got it. And then another one was like the... Some at the beginning, some of the community and even now supported um, Shulman and they're like, oh, he probably didn't know they were stolen. Like, uh, he's like so reputable. Like, there's no way he would have done something like that. But I think he's pretty sleazy. Yeah, it sounds like it. And I guess the Caliban bookshop is still operating, but he's not allowed to make a profit. It's only used to like pay bills or like to pay off rent of the mm. book space and something and he can't buy old like books anymore. Like utilities or something. I don't even know. I don't even know. Like, slap on the wrist is hardly what they got. Well, he put the stamp on it, so it was official. They got away with, like, oh, my God, they got away with it, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah, damaging history. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Also, as kids could go to to private schools, like, is that worth it? No. No matter where you go, the education's the same. Yeah, it's pretty fucked. So what? You get like a really hard to name, say, university behind you. Yeah. That didn't come out right at all. So clearly I didn't go to a private <laughs> <university>. <laughs> Sounded right to me. So clearly I didn't either. Look, I went to a private university for a couple of years and I basically felt like I was in high school. Mm. And then I went to like a public college and they were more regimented like, it was like better education i think except for you wouldn't uh -huh. be able to tell it since i've not been in school for years and i've just been gotcha. inside my Edumacation. house talking to my cat so my english isn't great but yeah i've been yeah. meowing most of the time so a lot of meowing happening oh <laughs> 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 mm -hmm. uh, no wow. i feel like I, this whole like pandemic and all of that has made me really dumb i'm like so spacey all the time and i just like cannot formulate sentences i need to start reading more because my vocabulary is just slipping well slipping slipping just go to your local library but uh um yeah yeah i will have to go to the local library uh and you know get that 
old book smelling fun time. Yeah, you clearly have a good grasp on the English language as well. It's been rough. (laughs) It's been so rough. Okay, yeah. Well, that was an interesting story. Thanks. And no, I mean, it was tragic in its own way. Yeah. For sure. But I just couldn't do another murder this time. Every time I looked at it, I was like, oh, this is so depressing. (laughs) So this one's going to be a surprise for both of us. This one is a surprise. Yeah, my case is a surprise for both of us (laughs) since uh, I just told Angela that I did it in a hurry because I've been running out of any kind of free time lately with work and stuff. So I... On Saturday, read a bunch, found one that I liked, wrote about it, and now I cannot remember what I wrote about. So Well, it concerns me that you say you liked it, because now I'm afraid oh. it's going to be awful. Uh-oh. Yes, yes, yes. Good. <laughs> that is a fair assessment. <laughs> I do think it will be awful. Okay. I'm guessing. I'm guessing. I can only guess because I wrote it. So. Knowing what well, I know I, of you. I copied and pasted it. So. Yeah. I got my information from Wikipedia, Ranker, Biography.com, Murderpedia, DangerousMinds.net, The Washington Post, CrimeAndInvestigation.co.uk. Damn. Um, Yeah. You're making me look bad with all this research you're doing. I mean... I don't. I can't say anything because I don't know what it's what this is gonna say. So I mean, it could be good and it could be really bad. Okay. Okay, I'm gonna tell you the story of Jack Unterweger. Mm. Unterweger. Oh. Do you remember? Zephyr's barking. You know. Do you remember now, or does that not give you anything? The name. No. Ooh. Not, <laughs> not ringing a bell yet. <laughs> but I'll have you know that he was not born Jack. Uh, God. Zephyr, stop barking. He was not born Jack. He was born Johan Antevega. Yeah, that makes more sense. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> In 1951, to Teresia. Untervega, a Viennese barmaid and waitress, mm-hmm. and Jack Becker, an American soldier who she met in Trieste, Italy. Uh, some sources oh. describe her mother as a sex worker, but uh, other places said that no, she was just a barmaid. <laughs> so, you know, you oh. say barmaid, I say sex worker, whatever. Yeah, I mean, isn't it all just one and the same? <laughs> That's horrible. Regardless of what her profession was, she was jailed for fraud while pregnant. Oh, no. But uh, released, and she traveled to Graz, where he was born. Um, I think that's in Austria. I'm going to (laughs) guess. Okay. After his mother was arrested again in 1953, Unterweger was sent to Carinthia to live with his alcoholic grandfather. Oh, God. Who was known as a rough fellow. Wait, so the dad is not in the picture? No, he okay. like was like, I'm here because, you know, war things. Yes. And then he was like, peace out, like, I'm going gotta home. Gotta get back. 
and she said, Sorry oh, about I'm pregnant. your pregnancy. <laughs> yeah, and you're fraud, and okay. And you're so, your jail time. <laughs> Sorry about that jail time. <laughs> I'm out of here. Uh, what a hero. So he's living with his alcoholic grandfather, who was Lovely. known as a rough fellow, who regularly used his grandson to help him steal farm animals. Another farm animal stealer? Oh, my God. Wow. Untervega was in and out of prison for much of his youth. He worked as a waiter, but between 1966 and 1974... Was he a waiter slash sex worker? Slash sex worker. Often get them confused. You're serving something. Oh, no. Uh, so between those years, he was convicted 16 times, mostly for theft-related offenses, but also for pimping and oh. sexual assaults on sex workers. Oh, so kind He's of... He's 16, pimping. You gotta Kay. get pimping young. I... Get pimping young. That's actually the pimping slogan. Get pimping young. <laughs> Shit, this is bad. <laughs> Uh, he spent most of those eight years in jail, all but 12 months. What eight years? Of between 66 and 74 that he was convicted 16 times oh, sh- for all different things. Okay. So for eight years, he was pretty much in prison the entire time, minus 12 months. So he graduated from stealing farm animals to pimping and abusing women. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's quite Sex the workers slash waitresses. Progression. <laughs> Couldn't keep those barmaids in check. Exactly. He said, uh, I wielded my steel rod among the sex workers of Hamburg, Munich, and Marcellus. Marseille? Marseille. Mm. Marseille. He later wrote, I had enemies and conquered them through my inner hatred. He sounds chill. Love him. What the fuck? <laughs> In December of 1976, Untervega and his girlfriend Barbara Schultz. No, Barbara. <laughs> no. It's even more no, because they kidnapped and murdered an 18-year-old named Margaret Schaefer. Oh, God. Untervega had propositioned the woman for sex. When she refused, he bludgeoned her with an iron bar. God. He then took her bra and strangled her, leaving her for dead. What a piece of shit. In court, he admitted his crime, telling the judge, I envisioned my mother in front of me, and I killed her. Ooh. 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 Big ooh ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. This is headed in a bad direction, if it wasn't already. Mm -hmm. He left her nude body face up in the woods, covered with leaves. But she was eventually found and connected to Untervega. Uh, yeah, I'm he guessing tried... he wasn't trying to hide that much. He, like, admitted it right away. Yeah. yeah, he tried to argue that he was having a psychotic break during the assault. Well, if he was seeing his mother. he saw his mother, yeah. 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 Um, he was declared insane by a psychologist to, who described him as a, quote-unquote, sexual, sadistic psychopath with narcissistic and histrionic tendencies prone to fits of rage and anger. Oh my god, that's quite (laughs) the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Fuck. Sounds spot on and terrifying. (laughs) Very very scary. 
Yeah, great. Can't wait to see where this story is going. So he, you know, he sucks. He sucks. And he, he said that he did it, so he was imprisoned. And Forever? He was, sentenced, he was sentenced to life imprisonment. Good. Uh-oh. Uh, Onto Vega followed the lead of certain American convicts, uh-huh. reinventing himself as an author of important literatura. What? Is that a thing? Uh, I guess. I mean, I think that they meant that he... that. Okay, so he actually, during this time, because he had been illiterate before he was in prison, uh-huh. uh, so he used the time to learn to read and write, and then oh. he decided that he was so... So I think that's what they meant by he was taking into... I don't know. Whatever. Whatever. Well, he learned to... What it sounds like to me is that it was like a trend here in the States for convicts to become To authors. start writing their shit, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So he. So he's gonna write about how he sucks. Over the next fourteen years, he produced a series of poems so beautiful (laughs) that they were being taught in Austrian schools. What? And and held up as the outpourings of a true poet's soul. So he went from being illiterate and a murderer, rapist, pimp Mm -hmm. to a poet. With a true poet's soul. That was being taught in schools to children. That is unreal. Did you read any of these poems? Um, unfortunately, there I couldn't find much. I mean, I probably could buy a book, but oh, I yeah. didn't. Yeah, no. And also, I, I don't either. read German, so... Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you should go to prison Shoot. so you can learn to read Ooh. and write German. So good. Oh, you should add Courtney translate. Guess what his nickname was? What? The poet of death. Shut up. <laughs> Shut up. So he's like all gothy. And I hate like, it. So emo. I mean, he's you know during he, this time he's like a, a teen or like an el- an old teen, an slash, elderly teen, an elderly teen <laughs> slash like young twenties writing these like, oh, life is horrible. Ugh. You know. When you're a sadist, yeah. murdering narcissist. He wrote plays, short stories, oh, and an autobiography called Purgatory or <laughs> The Trip to Jail, Report of a Guilty Man Who Told the Story of His Rehabilitation from Violent Criminal to Sensitive Writer. Oh, no. <laughs> that I book mean, made him... At least he's using it constructively. Uh-huh. I'm afraid of where this is headed. Right. Yes. The That book made him the toast of Viennese so- Cafe Society. Oh, no. His book, Enstation uh, Zutzthaus, meaning Terminal Prison. That was really good. Thank you. I don't think I said any of that right. <laughs> Um, <laughs> he won an Austrian literary prize in 1984. So here's the thing. When you find out like an artist that you really love their work and then you find uh-huh. out that they really suck, like uh-huh. a Salvador Dali, for instance, or, you know, someone it like that. It can be devastating. Uh, you have to learn to like separate the art from the artist, from the artist. Yeah. and not yep. think that like this poet is just like a newly reformed 
Huh. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, that's my that. that's my take on. It. I know where this is going. I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> um. He also wrote a book called Fega Flower. Um, that was clearly, obviously, <laughs> meaning purgatory, <laughs> which became a bestseller and was made into a successful film. I wonder if they're really that good. People loved it. They ate his shit up. I feel like the Austrians are kind of morbid. A lot of his uh, books and writings were about his struggles as the son of a sex worker and about the hardships suffered in prison. And he always seemed to paint himself as a victim instead of a killer. Well, of course. (laughs) Well, narcissist. Yeah. (laughs) Vega gave televised readings in the prison auditorium, which were attended by intellectuals and government officials. And was the family of the young girl that he murdered present to be like, this is what he did? No one really seemed to go into any of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was just so What about any of the sex workers that he abused? You mean the waitresses? (laughs) I mean the barmaids. What did happen to them? Nobody cares because he's just so deep and moody. He's the death poet. Death poet. Um, He uh, later he he was allowed to attend the premiere of his play End Station Prison at the Vienna People's Theater. I just don't think that you can be cured from being a sadistic. What what you call him a psychosexual sadistic narcissist or something? something I just don't like think that. you recover from that. But okay, <laughs> one might think so. Mm. Uh, influential Austrians petitioned the government no. for his release. I knew it. No, and the rehabilitated killer was paroled on May twenty third, nineteen ninety. Nope, big mistake. That life is over now, he told the press. Sure. Let's get on with the new. (laughs) Oh, sure. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. So I killed a person. We'll just move on. I write beautiful poems and books. I was raised by a sex worker, so I get away with everything now. He went to prison and an illiterate, poor, ex-pimp, psychopath, murderer, (laughs) and came out a media darling and was immediately welcomed into high-moving social circles. Wow. So now he's being invited to all these highfalutin people's Mm -hmm, houses mm -hmm. so that people can be like, oh my god, I have the dark poet at my cocktail party. Uh What do you have? Uh Yeah. The psychiatrist concluded, or a, a psychiatrist concluded that he had indeed gone straight, sublimating his aggression through writing. Uh, he was witty, okay. polite, and cool. <laughs> Here's the thing. <laughs> I understand that journaling can be very therapeutic, and it can be very mm-hmm. good for you. I just don't see how writing can substitute mm-hmm. For murder and rape and pimping and... Because, you know, he wrote beautiful poems. And he's just so polite. Well, the prison warden said that, uh, we will never find a prisoner so well prepared for freedom. (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, I mean, he is being accepted into society, so in a way... 
Untervega seemed obsessed with death, writing such yeah, disturbing <laughs> writing such disturbing odes as You seem strange and distant and lively death, but one day you will be close and full of flames. Come, lover, I am there. Take me, I am yours. Ooh. So maybe <laughs> it's not German even good. Better, it's right? not even good. Yeah, it's probably it's better so... in German. There must have been probably. some like mistranslation translation errors because like <laughs> that I was mean, like the writing really? of a thirteen-year-old. <laughs> yes, emo kid who's all depressed so in the angsty. room. Yes, not even good vocabulary. Just, just not good metaphors. <laughs> uh. It's uh, someone wrote his humor ran to the macabre at macabre macabre. Yeah. I think it's macabre. Uh, as he was, as when he posed for a photograph dressed in a suit and bow tie with a noose around his neck. <laughs> Hilarious! <laughs> what the fuck? That Jack. So he's silly. so clever. Oh my god. <laughs> oh, he's just so deep and dark, <laughs> mysterious. <laughs> No theme is more poetic than the death of a beautiful woman, Jack Antwiga wrote. No. He said, no. There's an age at which a woman must be beautiful in order to be loved. Nope. And there, and there is an age in which a woman must be loved in order to be beautiful. Oh, I disagree. It's like one of those things where it like sounds deep, but it's yeah, like, but it's actually no, quite rude that's not and deep inaccurate. at all. And you're just being a total dick. Uh, so just, far, I'm kind of they... underwhelmed. I'm just not. Yeah, his poetry sucks. Like you said, maybe it's better in the native language. Uh, so I feel like it could be better in German and it could be better thinking that he was unable to read or write for you know most of his life and this is like his new yeah so it's 13 year old yeah. 13 year old's writing yeah yeah very deep yeah um <laughs> well it just sounds the... more like he's like a novelty for rich people basically yeah exactly like i said he's like an accessory like they have him to their parties and they're a huge hit um when he was freed from prison he was 39 and wow. he had only served he had only served 15 years for the murder. Oh god. Uh-huh. He moved to Vienna where he found work as a television host and journalist. Stop it. No. Mu- much of his work incorporated his experiences in prison uh-huh. and he was viewed as a shining example of successful rehabilitation. Until Overnight, Jack became a fixture on television talk shows, posing as a model of prison rehabilitation, like I just said, uh-huh. enjoying most favored guest status at high society cocktail Ooh, parties. Most favored guest? They give he awards. He got that award, parties? little trophy. Best dressed, <laughs> most favored. Uh, his expertise in crime had made him the preferred crime dr- journalist in Austria. What expertise? He got caught. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, well, you a know, lot he was amongst times. he was amongst other criminals and like listened to their stories. So he's basically a crime professional. No, he got caught like a lot of times for all his crimes. <laughs> <laughs> you just don't get it. He's just so <laughs> I don't get him. Cool. Yeah, I don't get it. <laughs> when the news broke that more sex workers were being killed, Unt Weger established himself as an expert. 
Um, he routinely wrote articles about light about red light districts and sex workers being murdered. Uh-huh. Aunt Vega interviewed the police chief about the rash of murders and wrote articles criticizing law enforcement for their response or lack okay, thereof. Okay, this seems... <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. He's uh, uh-huh. taunting the police. Look, he's reformed. Now he's on their side. He's trying to figure out and what is happening. And for some crazy reason, sex workers are going missing. Yes, he's tra- He's just as befuddled as you. Yeah. He's trying to figure yeah. it out. Yeah, and why yeah. are the police not doing better police work? Yeah, they're so dumb. Yeah. Dom-doms. <laughs> this is horrible. He was uh, all over Austria partying with the high society and mm-hmm. living the wealthy lifestyle. Sure, he's a um, TV personality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he would always talk about his rehabilitation and, you know, always talking about how prison reform is a real thing and it can be done because look at me i did it i mean how long do you think you could keep that up um that whole like <laughs> i've well, been reformed oh. if you haven't really been reformed probably not very long <laughs> mm-hmm. but he was making a bunch of money for his celebrity yeah i'm sure and he started wearing designer clothes <laughs> and he drove a ford mustang with the license plate that said jack one so he wasn't Uh the first jack unfortunately someone beat him out for that one (laughs) yeah he had to pick a new uh, it's like fine do you have jack one and they're like yeah we do have jack one i'll take jack one it's even better than jack anyway fine yeah because i'm like the number one yeah and at this time he acquired an 18-year-old girlfriend. Wait, wait. What happened? First of all, I will mention the age gap. But before that, go back to the one, Barb. What happened to Barb? Barb. Uh, I think she, you know, was like... Did she get prison time, though, for helping him murder someone? So. Oh, okay, great. Okay. Yeah. And you know. so he's, like, in his 40s. He He's 39. And With an his girlfriend is 18. <laughs> So, no. you know, all legal, all kosher. Um, he was a go. pimp. He abused sex workers. He murdered an 18-year-old. Angela, I think you're really and not looking at how he is a reformed Look, if person, you've never committed a crime a, before in your life and you're a 39-year-old digging an 18-year-old, that's disgusting. I still don't approve. Okay, but he is an author. No. He is a high society <laughs> man. He goes on television. Yeah. He's wealthy now. Yeah, then why can't he date someone his own age? He wants a fresh one. Ew. <laughs> Ew. So now that you're done dry heaving. I'm not done dry heaving, but you can continue. <laughs> so as the as this is happening, you yes. know, he's having the time of his life um, on... September 15th, 1990, a passerby walking along the river, Vitava, Vitava this is River. the same year that he was released, right? 1990? Yeah. So this has just like been months going by. So that yeah, like this, this is, yeah, months, okay. that, mo- months have gone by, but like during the time that, um, right. because I had said that he was in, he was writing about all these sex workers right. dying. So I'm going to talk a little bit about like the police and like what they, you know, what okay. they're seeing. Yeah, let's get to that. Let's see what's going on time. over there. Well, over in at Vitava Vitava River in Czechoslovakia mm-hmm. near Prague, uh, this passerby came across 
a grisly sight of the body of a young woman, Blanca Bokava. She was the first victim. It said first victim, but I'm going to say that the other woman was the first victim. Uh, so, d- but you just I think. gave it away. What? That he's killing them. Oh! <laughs> okay. The first victim found. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yes, okay, good yeah. call. Yeah, thank you. Good thing I didn't yeah. ruin it for everyone. Yeah, spoiler. Better bleep Shit. that part out. Bleep. She was left <laughs> in a state of degradation, lying on her back, nude, with a pair of gray stockings knotted around her neck. Interesting. Her legs were open, and she had been covered with leaves. Interesting. So sounds similar. It does sound a little similar. Hmm. The night before, she had gone out with friends for a drink in the upper market of Wenslas Square Mm -hmm. and had remained (gasps) in a bar. Like King Wenslas or whatever? Oh, is that a thing? Yeah. Is it a king? There's like a poem. (gasps) A poem. A poem. (laughs) (laughs) Or it's like a song or something. Winsless, whatever. Yeah, okay. Sounds right. <laughs> Rude. Don't you just miss my knowledge like Fine, that? we'll talk for an hour about your Thank King you. Winsless song. <laughs> <laughs> well, this poor woman is about to die. God. What's more important here? <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Sorry. So, she was at the bar yeah. and had left around 11.45 p.m., She was last seen talking to a man aged around 40, Mm -hmm. but no one could offer any other details. Bokava was a fun-loving girl and was not a sex worker. I don't know why they said that. (laughs) Oh, I guess because sex workers were going missing. missing. She was not a sex worker. Okay. Was she a barmaid? She could have been a barmaid or... A waitress. Sorry, that's in bad taste. I'm sorry. This poor thing. Okay. Yeah. So uh, then several weeks later, Brunhilde Maser, a well-known... I know. What a cool name. A well-known sex worker from Graz was reported missing. As Austria Mm. had very few problems with sex workers, uh, the authorities became concerned. Two months later... hmm? What is that? Do you know what that means? Yeah, so... I might get to it later. I'm not sure if I actually wrote it. But in Austria, um, sex work is not criminal. So all sex workers are registered. They get tested. They Mm -hmm. like, you know, everyone knows who the sex workers are. So they don't generally show up missing because they're not Mm -hmm. the like less known, less dead or whatever. People know them like they're just workers. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they have like their, you know. I don't know. I'm not going to say they have a union, but they have like different things that they do and they register every year and they get, I'm sure they pay taxes or whatever their thing is. Okay. So yeah, people, people notice when they start going missing and dying and they know who they are. They're not like the nameless people. Right. Okay. So, um, two months later in early December, another sex worker, Hilda Marie or Heidi Marie, Hammerer also went missing. On New Year's Eve, almost a month after her disappearance, her body was found by hikers in a wood. Okay, it said in a wood. Say <laughs> in the woods. Outside of the town. Uh-huh. <laughs> like the first murder, she was also found on her back and covered with dead leaves and bramble. Uh-huh. 
it appeared that the body had been redressed and then dragged through the woods. Aww. Although not naked, her legs were bare and missing a piece of material from her slip that was found inside her mouth. Aww. Hammerer, like Blanca Bacava, had been strangled with a pair of tights and mm-hmm. also displayed bruises and ligature marks on her wrists, suggesting she had been tied up. Several red fibers were found on her clothing that didn't match anything she was wearing and appeared to be possibly evidence that was left by the killer. Interesting. So they kept those pieces of red fiber. This Uh, is getting forensic file status. Yes. Fiber evidence. Well, we're in the 90s. Ooh. We have evidence. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's so cool. Um, A few days later, the body of missing sex workers. Oh, my God. This is like so rapid. Oh, wait. So this is sorry. I puzzled piece this together. So I'm not sure in which order they were found. But (laughs) uh, obviously Brunhilde was found. Yeah. The Austrian Federal Police investigating the cases found it difficult to unearth details about the sex workers clients. There had been no witnesses to the murders and the police found themselves with not too many leads other than a couple fibers to go Mm -hmm. off of and so this is the austrian police so they weren't aware of blanca bokava's murder because she was killed in czechoslovakia yeah well the czech republic or whatever it is now in prague yeah yeah and so they had no they didn't really realize they were dealing with a serial killer Right. For some reason. Well, wait, didn't they have like three victims? They had a couple, yeah. But there wasn't much evidence other. I mean, I thought like. Okay. Okay. Uh, Yeah. That's what I'm saying. That's why he was like, police, you're not doing your best. What's happening? Yeah. Okay. Because he really cared. Yes. He loves sex (laughs) workers now and women. All women. Their minds started to change that they might be dealing with a serial killer. Yeah. When. More sex workers started showing up dead. Uh, it shouldn't take that, you know? It shouldn't take a, more deaths, but oftentimes a, it does, I know. A woman named Elfried Schrempf uh, disappeared from Graz in March of 91. Schrempf's parents contacted the police to notify them that a man had called the family home several times and taunted Ooh. them about their daughter's <gasps> occupation. Ooh. What concerned them and the police was the fact that the girl's telephone number was unlisted and suggested Mm -hmm. that the person who may be responsible for her disappearance made the calls. Mm -hmm. The police, if they hadn't realized it... Oh, wait, I already said that. They were dealing with a serial killer. Wow, I should proofread. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Four more sex workers vanished, this time from Vienna. Sylvia Zagler... Yep. Sylvia Zagler, Sabine Moitzi, Regina Prem, and Karen Aroglu had all vanished within the period of a month. Oh my god. The police in Vienna were now looking for what they dubbed the Vienna Woods Killer. Mm. Because all the bodies are found in forested In a wood. In a wood. Covered covered in a leaf. In a leaf. That's so, so many in such a short amount of time. So Sabine Moitzi's body was discovered on May 20th, 92. It didn't take long to identify her. Because oh, okay. Her... So this is two years later. Yeah, between found. 90 and 20. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. That, 
this is happening. Okay. He's just, I mean, there's just a frenzy of these women showing up dead. Right. Okay. Her husband had filed a missing persons report the previous oh. month. Um, she was 25. She was a bakery sales girl by day, but unknown even to her husband, she occasionally worked uh, as a secret sex worker, which Aww. meant that she was not re- registered with the uh, with the Office of Health as sex workers are required to by law in Vienna. I'm just trying to make some money under the table, aren't we yeah, all? She, well, she had become addicted to heroin. Oh, honey, no. And her wages at the bakery different didn't cover the extra expense. Yeah, they wouldn't. Yeah. Would they? Oh, at, that's sad. At around 11 p.m. on the night she had disappeared um, on April 16th, her friend Ilsa dropped her off at the intersection near the rail yard of Ooh. the West train station. When Ilsa passed by 10 minutes later, Sabini was gone. Her body was found five weeks later in a state of decay, indicating she had been dead about that long. Oh, God. The second body was found three days later Mm. on May 23rd. A woman looking for her guinea pig's favorite (gasps) food. What? Found the naked corpse of Karen Aeroglue. Uh, what? I'm guessing like little like weeds, like little plants that the guinea pig might like to eat or something. Uh-huh. She was like she's like foraging, foraging. Okay, and then she comes across Her a body. Her favorite food. That's so sweet. <laughs> I know. What an innocent activity. I, I know. Turned horribly <laughs> wrong. Oh, it's bad. I'm just like imagining her on her hands and knees, picking yeah. little bits of bits and crawling and crawling. And like, then, oh, the guinea pig's oh. gonna love this one. Oh. Yikes. Uh, Karen Araglu had disappeared on the night of May 7th from her corner. Uh-huh. Uh, she was a known sex worker. Just a few blocks from where Sabini had last been seen. She had been driven 10 miles outside the city, even deeper into the woods. Hmm. Her body lay in a grove of spruce trees, 30 yards from the nearest road. Most likely, her killer had forced her to walk to the spot where Ugh. her corpse would be found later. That's awful. The trauma to her face indicated she had been beaten. Oh, from God. her leotard, he had fashioned the same kind of ligature that had been found around Sabini Moitzi's neck. Oh. Both women had been strangled and dumped in woodlands outside of the city of Vienna, Again, the M.O. of the killer was the same. The victims had been asphyxiated with articles of their own clothing. Horrible. Rudolf Prem, husband of the still-missing Regina, had grown up... Or she had grown up in an orphanage and held, seri- held serious menial jobs. According to Rudolf, two years after she met him, she realized she could make a lot more money turning tricks... They had a child and got married, and Rudolph quit his job as a plumber to be a stay-at-home dad and look after the boy, who You'd think was that a under- plumber would make more money. Um, apparently, a sex worker makes way more money, Girl. and the Girl. boy was under the impression that his mother was a waitress. Oh, honey. <laughs> Must be an interchangeable thing. Yeah, I uh, guess <laughs> I guess we don't really know Austrian <laughs> culture so well. Yeah. Uh, no That's offense. so sad. No. <laughs> With her earnings, she had furnished I was going to say none taken. That wasn't for me. <laughs> nope, nope. Uh, sorry, Austria. Oh, yeah. With her sorry, earnings, she had... servers and sex workers. Yeah. 
She had furnished their apartment and built a playroom. Wow. She was an insanely good mother, Rudolph told Profile oh. Magazine. She'd let herself be torn to pieces for that boy, he said. Um, That's so sad. At 9.45 p.m. Sunday, April 28, 91, Rudolph dropped Regina off for an appointment with a regular client, a wine salesman, mm. until she finished work, or usually she finished work around 2 a.m., and called Rudolph to pick her up. When she didn't call that morning, he drove to her corner and saw she wasn't there. Oh, God. So stressful. Yeah. Meanwhile, a breakthrough suddenly came to the foreground when a retired 70-year-old investigator, August Shainer, uh, recalled a series of murders and attacks he had dealt with in the 70s. Ah. The crime scene... Uh, the crime scene and cause of death were remarkably similar to the murders now being committed in Austria. While Anto Vega was being feted by the chattering classes and inviting, invited to glitzy soirees and parties, Ooh. he was also being asked for his opinions and advice on the latest disappearance of sex workers that he alone was responsible for. Oh, Spoiler alert. I bet he loved it. What a sick fuck. Yeah. Uh, well, way to go, the, August. The killer at this time was now known as the Courier, and Unterweger not only participated in television talk shows about the matter, but even conducted broadcast interviews on the street himself. Oh, good. Lovely. Just give him more to feed his fucking <laughs> weird shit. While the de- devious Unterweger was basking in the spotlight of celebrity mm-hmm. and seeing his books rise up to the bestsellers list, Mm-mm. he was still continuing his sickening obsession with brutalizing women. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Why would he stop? At, at one point in June of 91, he got the chance to take his show on the road. An Austrian magazine commissioned him to write about crime in Los Angeles. What? Yeah, so they flew him out <gasps> to L.A. Great, that's just what L.A. needs. With his lover, with his 18-year-old girlfriend, no. um, Ante Vega, he also got to do several ride-alongs with the local oh, L.A. police. Oh, my God. To see where exactly these sex workers are hanging out uh-huh. and you know get the for the story spiel, the story of what's yeah. happening it's gotta get the scoop he also during his time he stayed at the hotel cecil on 7th and main which i don't know if you know much about that but there's a I lot of don't lore. know anything about it there's actually a lot of lore about this hotel because um a lot of I'm actually I I did a little Wikipedia copy paste about it so oh, I can tell you a little yeah, bit about let's the hotel hear about because it. it is an interesting. It's very haunted because a lot of stuff happened there. Mm. Um, I'm just gonna tell you a couple of the things. Okay. Uh, so first of all, it is in a seedy area of town where a lot of sex workers hang out and sure. you know pimps and drug dealers and all this stuff. The first documented suicide at the Cecil was reported in 1931 when a guest named W.K. Norton died in his room after taking poison capsules. Ooh. Throughout the 40s and 50s, uh, more and more suicides occurred there. Ooh. 
By the 60s, longtime residents had begun to call the Cecil the suicide. So this was kind of this, like, people had, like, long-term stays there. You know, Mm -hmm. you could rent a room if you wanted, but a lot of the people were, like, regulars. They lived there, basically. Right. Um, In 1947, it is said that Elizabeth Short, who was dubbed by the media as the Black Dahlia, Mm -hmm. was was rumored to have been spotted drinking at the bar there just days before her murder. Oh, in 1964, a retired telephone operator named Pigeon Goldie Osgood, <laughs> who had been a well-known, well-liked, long-term resident at the hotel, was found dead in her room. She oh, had Pigeon. Been, she had been raped, stabbed, <gasps> and beaten, and her room ransacked. Oh, God. A man named Jacques B. Ellinger was charged with Osgood's murder, but he was later cleared and her <gasps> death remains unsolved. Ooh. Uh, just like, yeah. It's like Elizabeth Short's uh, murder was unsolved. Uh huh. Um, in, in the 1980s, the hotel was rumored to be the residence of serial killer Richard Ramirez. Ew. Nicknamed the Night Stalker. Yes. And. Yeah, Ramirez had been a regular presence on the Skid Row area of L.A. Gross. In 2013, the Cecil, then by then rebranded as Stay on Main, although still remaining <laughs> its original Hotel Cecil signs, <laughs> but they were like, Stupid. nope, we're new. We're <laughs> we have a different name somewhere. <laughs> Not on the building, else. but elsewhere. Yeah, Um, but it became the focus of renewed attention when surveillance footage of a young Canadian student, Elisa Lamb, (gasps) behaving erratically in the hotel's elevator went viral. Oh, no. The video depicts Lamb repeatedly pressing elevator buttons. Did you watch that video? Yes, I've seen it. I watched it numerous times trying to figure it out. Well, I think Um, it was, I think it was like a mental. Well, yeah, so they said um, the, you know, she... She's seen repeatedly pushing elevator bu- buttons, yeah. walking in and out of the elevator. She looks some. Sometimes she looks like she's like attempting to hide from someone. Yeah, sometimes she looks followed. like she's like looking for someone. Yeah. In the record, uh, it was recorded shortly before her disappearance, and her naked body was discovered in the water supply cistern on the hotel roof, yeah. only because. There had been complaints from residents of odd-tasting water and low pressure, Ew, which, like, they've so been gross. showering okay, and drinking yeah, dead body soup. Okay. Speaking of bathing in soup, oh. do you do you want to smell good and not like dead body soup? You should try Humblebee Herbals, fragrant, but they don't use fragrance oil, only all-natural ingredients and all-natural essential oils to scent yeah. their wonderful soaps. Yeah. Humblebee yeah. Herbal.com. <laughs> um, so, like, the, some people, you know, how she got into the cistern kind of remains a mystery because it was, you know, high up and you had to climb a ladder. Right. And it was said that, like, the the opening was not really that big and also right. why her clothes were taken off. But uh, as of now, her death is being ruled accidental due to drowning because with a significant factor being her bipolar disorder, um, she might have been manic and not knowing what she was doing. Yeah. Anyway, 
So that that is where he stayed when he was in L.A. to Mm. report. They should just tear the whole thing down. That's just like. Yeah, it's bad. After like 12th suicide, it's like just just get rid of it. It's not good. Yeah, it's not good. It's like haunted. It's got bad energy. Yeah, it's not good. Although if you tear it down i think the energy still stays we gotta like sage the fuck out of the ground (laughs) bury some crystals i don't know i don't know piles and piles of sage yeah just do a bond sage bonfire (laughs) you gotta get some like serious uh people to come bless the shit out of it just dump yeah, a bunch of holy water. Some... Yeah, I was going to uh... say, why not throw an exorcism in? <laughs> Go for it. Might as well. Every type of religion and spiritual thing should just go in and do whatever their thing is. Yeah, just do the thing to get do whatever out of there. Chant your stuff. Yeah, yeah. Whatever you got to do. Yeah. Anyway, while he was in L.A., he wrote a couple articles focusing primarily on Hollywood sex workers. Of but course. he had a more personal interest in his subject. Um, uh-huh. Real life in L.A., he subsequently wrote, is dominated by a tough struggle for survival, by the broken dreams of thousands who come to the city and an equal, num- and an equal number who leave, sometimes dead. I just feel like everyone's written that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> He's so edgy. I just think everyone. Yeah. Okay. And it's not like he's writing this in, like, I don't know. The 40s? Yeah, yeah. It's the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. How many people have (laughs) talked about, like, broken dreams and people, like, dying in L.A.? It's just old news. Not that good. Anyway, um, so victims start appearing in L.A. The first victim, 35-year-old Shannon Exley, was found in Boyle Heights on June 20th. The second victim, 33-year-old Irene Rodriguez, was found in the same neighborhood 10 days later. He's just, like, not smart. <laughs> he thinks he it. is, though. Yeah, That's he does. Problem. But it's like, okay, and you're he's... murdering in Austria, and that doesn't really happen that much. And then you leave, uh-huh. and all of a sudden the murders stop there. And they start in L.A. We're granted, yeah, murders happen all the time in L.A., but... Especially with Come sex on. workers who aren't being... So, um, you know, looked for or look, looked after yeah, yeah. but um, come on uh then peggy booth was found she was 26 she was found in malibu canyon on july 10th mm-hmm. all three women were sex workers all three had been savagely beaten before they were strangled with their own bras and, and all then three he has bodies... like the signature it's like yes switch it up at least if you're in a different country switch it up he literally thinks he is the shit so like he can get yeah. away with it well yeah and where's this 18 year old uh victim and all of this yeah it didn't really get into that hmm. all three bodies were sexually violated with tree branches oh Ugh. god what a dick yeah within a 14 day period uh within That's a 14 day period with nine days of cooling off between the first and second, and five days between the second and third. Just killing. Uh. Yeah. Dr. Ernst Geiger, a detective on the Austrian Federal Police Force, had never been convinced that Antweger's act, but had never been convinced by Antweger's act as a reformed man. 
and he had a, a discreet surveillance kept on him. Ooh. When Untweger was invited to L.A. to write articles, it wasn't just Geiger who noticed that the latest murders had suddenly stopped. Ah, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Just uh-huh. like Detective Angela says. That's right. Now he realized that he would have to look seriously into Antweger's movements and either eliminate or arrest him. Mm-hmm. It was just a question of getting the right evidence. The police began to trace all of Antweger's <gasps> activities from credit cards to receipts and rental car agencies. Yeah, and red fibers. <laughs> After several months, they had accumulated many links to the man's movements and places <laughs> and places where the victims had been murdered. So they're like, oh, he stopped at this gas station. Oh, there's like, like a map a block of where, all the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, it's actually showed... really obvious. Had we looked into this like months or years ago, we would have seen it. <laughs> it's pretty obvious. Yeah. But he's reformed. Everyone thought he was reformed except for this guy. Mm-hmm. Records showed that Antweger was in Graz when Brunhilde Masser was found strangled, and also mm-hmm. in Bregenz when victim Heidi Marie Hammerer disappeared off the radar. A witness also testified that Antweger was similar to a man she had seen with Hammerer just before she disappeared, oh. and that he had been wearing a brown leather jacket and red scarf. Oh. Red scarf. <laughs> Sightings of Antweger with the other victims in Vienna were also established. <laughs> Following Antweger's return to Austria, where he released, where he realized he was now a suspect, <laughs> he wrote articles criticizing the police force's effort to track down the killer <sighs> because so many people had taken a great risk in believing what un- that Antweger was a reformed character. They supported him in his crusade against the police. Oh, my God. it's hard to say you were wrong. It's hard, but it's important. All you Trumpers. Oh, but yes. I don't care. It's hard, but it's important <laughs> to admit when you're wrong. And we admit support it. when you admit that you're wrong. And that's just a it's part great. of it growing and learning. Yes, and it's amazing. It shows that you're growing and you're a human and you yes. have faults. Yes. Dr. Geiger was able to carry out forensic tests on a BMW that Antwenger had bought on his lease, on his release from prison. On his prison lease? <laughs> on his prison lease. He's like, like you're going to need a car. <laughs> um, a hair fragment was found and DNA tests proved Ooh. that it belonged to Blanca Bakova, the first yeah. victim from Prague. This evidence allowed a search warrant, allowed a warrant search, no, allowed a search warrant of the suspects, <laughs> I don't know why I wrote Oh yeah, no, search. it is a warrant, a warranted it's, search. Sure. A warrant Of the search. suspects flat in Vienna where they discovered a brown leather jacket and red <gasps> scarf. Oh. They also came across a menu and receipts from a Malibu seafood restaurant. Together with home snapshots of Antweger posing with female members of the Los Angeles Police Department, Geiger, uh-huh. on a hunch, thought that something might also turn up in L.A. He contacted uh-huh. the police there and discovered that there were that they were in the throes of investigating three killings of sex workers. Geiger's oh. discovery. 
Geiger discovered that all of the murders in L.A. were identical to those in Austria. They had all been killed Mm -hmm. while Antweger was in the city masquerading as a journalist and required and requiring the LA police to assist him with his research. What a dick. More importantly, receipts from the Antweger's apartment uh, correlated to hotels near where the sex workers were murdered. Of course. One worrying development for the police was that Antweger had acquired an impressionable girlfriend, Bianca Marac, who was now missing from home. (gasps) Oh, no. It now became an urgent crusade to track down Antweger before anything happened to her. Oh, no. Tipped off by friends that the police were now searching for him, Antwanger left Austria with Mrak. Why? Why would they tip managed... him off? Because <sighs> they thought he's reformed. They're so dumb. They, they don't think that he's responsible for any of this. They're so dumb. They just think he's being like uh, cornered and accused. Dumb. He managed to enter into America. <laughs> okay. He <laughs> then started a campaign to make him look like a victim of police persecution and contacted the Austrian press. The manipulative Antweger managed to persuade Austrian newspapers to publish his case for defense. What? Playing the wronged man role and victim of police vindictiveness. It's like, what is he? I just... He literally thinks that that he can fool everyone. Yeah, but it's working. Yeah. Yeah. That's why he even more thinks it. What the hell? Some of the papers agreed and even paid for paid him for an exclusive article. So he's making money off of this. Of course he is. Mrak herself <sighs> revealed that she was happy to be with Antweger, and the picture created was that they were fugitives facing persecution from the Austrian police who had signaled s- signaled who had singled him out as a scapegoat. Well, she's a child. Of course she's uh, going to be like, it's fine. So, okay, one article that I read said that Mrak asked her mother to wire them some money in the United States. Mm-hmm. And the the police were on to it, so they yeah. arrested them at the uh, Western Union office. Right. But then... A lot, and that was in California, but a lot of articles said that they were arrested in Miami, Florida, um, and that she, that the reason that they had gone to Florida was because they were both obsessed with the show Miami Vice, and they really wanted to go check that place out. What the fuck? Okay. Any, either way, they were arrested. Mrak, during this time, though, kept, stood by her man, telling one interviewer that he couldn't have killed them. They weren't his type. Ew. Okay, that just shows, like, <laughs> how naive she is. And that she knew something was happening. Uh. Like, he's obviously some kind of violent if she knows that he has a killing type. No, I think that she just meant they're not his type. Um, they probably didn't look like her and she was like their type mm. like why would he date them or why would he pay them for sex if they're not his type you know oh. 
Yeah. yeah. Okay. I see. Yeah. 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 Because that's probably she what he al- told her. She was like, she also, oh. she also said, Jack has such beautifully cared for hands. Ew. He can be. <laughs> He could be very sweet with those hands. Ew. I can't imagine that he could have used those hands to kill someone. Okay, well, just because you can't imagine it and he's got nice hands. What? Also, girl, How you're is 18. that a defense? <laughs> but look yeah. at his hands. Oh, look at his beautiful hands. No killer has such beautiful hands. <laughs> I mean, how many killer's hands have you looked at? Do you want your hands to be beautiful? <laughs> Check out Humblebee Herbal's new lotion bar. It's great. Or lotion. Or, or lotion, lotion stick. Lotion stick, lotion bar, lotion. So many ways. Do it. So many ways to moisturize your hands. Yeah. Humblebeeherbal.com. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A search of Antweger and Marak's Malibu apartment revealed many incriminating items that could be linked to the murdered L.A. sex workers. Mm-hmm. The police also recovered a diary written by Antweger, which suggested he had plans to dispose of Mrak. Oh. <gasps> in, <laughs> with his beautiful in, hands? Ah, yes, with these beautiful Ooh, hands. Uh-oh. In custody once more, Antweger was accused of killing 11 sex workers wow. since his release from prison six people six women from austria three from los angeles and two in czechoslovakia the the czechs didn't want him but austria and united (laughs) states squabbled over jurisdiction like no why would we want him here he killed two of our people (laughs) fuck that guy yeah no get him out um he he says that he preferred he would prefer to be tried in california as he knew that he would be facing a charge of murder against just three victims as opposed oh. to six in Austria. Yeah, However, except for in Austria, he like got however, let out. However, uh-huh. exactly. However, realizing that he could be facing the gas chamber, uh, yeah, he quickly agreed to extradition. Yeah. Unfager was deported on May 28th, 1992. His homeland winning out when Austrian officials agreed to try Antwega for five forcing, five forcing murders, as well as the six committed on their soil. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they were going to try them for the three in California and the two in Czechoslovakia and the six. Oh. Um, extradition was thereby approved, and Los Angeles authorities packed up their forensic evidence for shipment across the Atlantic. Wow. Antweger played on the logic to defend, played on logic to defend himself, which, Mm -hmm. okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Why, as he pointed out, would a man such as himself, who had been rewarded so well with fame and money, suddenly decide to destroy his privileged life by murdering women? Well, I mean, it's not so Mm. sudden, is it? Tell me that. I just did. But... (laughs) Before the court case commenced, Dr. Geiger enlisted Thomas Mueller, chief of the Criminal Psychology Service in the Federal Ministry of the Interior, to accompany him to America and learn all they could about the psychology of compulsive serial killers. Oh, okay. That's like so embarrassing. 
that we have such knowledge on compulsive serial killers. They're like, you better go over what? there. Yeah, they're like, we don't, we've never experienced this. We over don't even here. know what you to better look go for. To the land of serial killers to figure it out. So embarrassing. And luckily, by that time, the behavioral science unit oh, at Quantico, God. Virginia, uh-huh. had been set up out of necessity so, because mm-hmm. we have so many goddamn serial killers. <laughs> so Geiger and Mueller discovered that there were standard forms of behavior mm. rela- relating to murderers like you're Aunt welcome. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Who also displayed deviant sexual obsessions and mm-hmm. usually follow that usually followed a pattern. Mm-hmm. Although most serial killers rarely moved from one county or sorry, one country to another, the details of the deaths of the LA sex workers were too close to those in Austria to be purely coincidental. Well, and he was here at the time. Like how many yeah. serial killers are going international? <laughs> it's like, huh. And they're being killed. Around the areas that you that have been pointed out to you yeah. by the police. Plus, I don't know. I haven't done extensive research, but I don't know of any serial killers who like went international for like work or, you know, like oh. most of them just stuck around their areas because mm-hmm. that's where they lived and worked. But him, he like right. got a trip out here. Why not kill? Yeah. While you're here. It's a free kill-vation. Kill-vation? Kill-cation. <laughs> so they better check yeah. their little behavioral science unit books yes but there was more tangible evidence to come against Aunt Vega when analysis on the knots to tie ligatures on the three LA sex workers matched the pantyhose knots used mm. on the victims in Austria mm-hmm. in June of 94 in Graz Austria the trial began Aunt Vega, as an Austrian citizen was to be tried of all murders in L.A., Prague, and Austria. The man himself played to the gallery and utilized his well-honed skills of manipulation by appealing to the jury and the public's sense of fair play when he admitted he was a rat and an inveterate liar who -hmm. consumed women rather than loved them. How could they fail to dismiss such self- such self-deprecating honesty. So he's like, look, I'm not killing them. Granted, I don't love all the women. honest. I just use them and leave them. But I'm not a murderer. I just admitted to you that I, like, use women. Yeah, why would I admit to that and not murder? Exactly. Yeah. Perhaps equally damning was the fact that Unfiger lacked a plausible alibi for any of the 11 <laughs> murders. One of his lawyers, George Zanger, told the court limply, It's always a coincidence if one has an alibi. Such an intelligent man would certainly have taken care to have one if he needed it. So they're like, well, yeah, who remembers what they did, like... Months or years Granted. ago, you know, if he remembered, right. then he would be guilty because then yeah. he would have to come up with something That's right. that he did. That's a good argument. Mm-hmm. What the defense Clearly, didn't count on. Oh, he's just guilty of using women and not yeah. having an alibi. It's like he's a shitty guy. We're what? not disputing that. Right. He's the first to admit it. But mm-hmm. but what they didn't count on 
the, the defense, yeah. was that the response to such questioning from the prosecution based on psychiatric reports and the FBI investigate investigative analysis that pointed out that a man such as Antweger was not rational. As uh-huh. someone who suffered from uncontrolled compulsions and fetishes, it really didn't matter what status he held in life. He'd uh, still kill, yeah. as it was an addiction. Thank you. Unvigor seemed confident throughout the trial, never failing to smile for the cameras, but evidence was mounting up against him. Further evidence, such as the crime lab reports on the ligature knots, Blanca Bakava's hair strand recovered from the BMW, and the red fibers found on Brunhilde Masser's body from the scarf finally added up to a compelling case against the defendant. But Antwenger was still unrepentant. Two and a half months later, even the most supportive press of Antwenger began to change their views. Wow. The devious socio... (laughs) Yeah, like, ooh, it's not looking good for us. The devious sociopath also began to lose support from the literary establishment and his girlfriend, Bianca Mrak. Uh Uh-oh. Because they read the diary? uh, Yeah, I mean, ooh. (laughs) Like, what? You wanted to kill me? That's not good. No. After nine hours of deliberation, the verdict was rendered as as lightning and thunder crashed theatrically outside the courthouse. (laughs) Spooky. (laughs) Two jurors voted for acquittal on all accounts. A majority... What? Wait, what? No, so, sorry. The majority of them... The majority voted to... That he was guilty. Okay, but not all? Two of them voted for an acquittal. How? But... In Austria, uh, a majority, which holds sway under Austrian law, chose acquittal in... Uh, what? What? <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> they had cho- So they had chosen to acquit him of two of the murder convictions. Why? Since there were just bones found and there wasn't, a, there wasn't evidence, actual evidence, other than, like coincidence the fact that he is a serial killer he did it (laughs) yeah but there wasn't hard enough evidence but they convicted him of nine of the murders okay fine but really (sighs) including the three from california good Antweger was led to his cell during a routine check by a guard at 3 a.m no on june 29th the defendant was lying quietly on his cot Mm mm-hmm just twiddling his thumbs. Too quietly. Then, during another check, forty minutes later, uh-huh. he was found dead. <gasps> he took his own life by hanging himself with a rope made from shoelaces and a cord from the trousers of his tracksuit. <sighs> he is reported to have used an intricate knot identical uh... to that used in the murdered sex workers. See, now that's poetic. Several audio cassettes were recovered from his cell, but their content has never been divulged. And uh, his lawyer quoted, he said, Every day he said to me, if I'm found guilty, I'll kill myself. I didn't believe him, but after the verdict, he looked completely deflated. Like a sausage that had (laughs) lost its stuffing, which I think 
It must be like so the most Austrian. <laughs> so he looked like a deflated oh, sausage. Classic. Um, one Austrian politician said after his death, it was his best murder. Uh, yeah. uh-huh. Because he had died before he could appeal the verdict, under a technicality of Austrian law, Antweger is officially to be considered as innocent <gasps> despite the original guilty verdict. Antweger's case was one of those considered in a review of this what? Austrian legal principle. So I think now that's not a thing that happens anymore. But yeah. before you were allowed to have a retrial or like at right. least have your stuff re-seen. An appeal, yeah. Yeah, and... Uh, since he never was, he was found innocent. Oh, wow. Uh, another quote from his lawyer, he said, He was a very difficult person to understand. <laughs> to have a conversation with him was hard. I think he wasn't normal. <laughs> of, of course it's hard to have a normal conversation with someone accused of killing 11 people. Mm. Not one or two or three or four, <laughs> but 11. <laughs> Well said. <laughs> wow. The tossed salad and the scrambled egg. A tossed salad, a scrambled egg. Definitely a tossed salad. I'm yeah, a hundred percent tossed salad. Just a real 100%. dick salad. A dick salad. Yeah, dude sucked. <laughs> God, 11 women, 12 women, including the, the, yes, first, the one. first one. Right. Well, good thing he killed himself. And I mean, how many more yeah. just weren't found? Yeah. If he was go, if he was killing in other countries and yeah. stuff, there could have been many more. Yes. So, and of course, as soon as he gets caught and put back in prison, he kills himself because he's too much of a coward. Coward. Mm-hmm. Coward salad disgusting dick coward salad that's right <laughs> what a piece of shit <laughs> that sucked shit. yeah so yeah sorry about it gross <laughs> <laughs> oh, way to end it on a bad note turd note yeah shall um, we crime any sakes yeah and now for the portion that we like to call Criminy Six, where we tell you silly stories about crime that make you forget the terrible things we just told you. Alright, let's, let's do a couple Criminy Six. Um da, da, da. Alright. I've got one from WTFFlorida.com. Oh, your go-to. I love it. Florida. Plus, I thought it was appropriate since they got captured in Florida. Oh, possibly. Uh, In Palm City, two Florida men were arrested for unlawfully taking an alligator. (laughs) 27-year-old Timothy Kepke of Hobie Sound and... And 22-year-old Noah Osborne of Stewart were both arrested on October 3rd after the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission investigated a video of the incident. Back in August, 
Kepke enticed the gator to bite his forearm before pouring a Coors Light beer into the reptile's mouth. What? And if that's not a more Floridian beer, <laughs> Coors <laughs> Light, the water of well, the Florida man. Actually, Coloradan. Coloradan. Uh, that's a Florida man right there, drawled an <laughs> off-camera onlooker in the Snapchat video. <laughs> Presumably, it was Osborne speaking. Oh. He was corrected by a woman who said, that's a fucking idiot. (laughs) Osborne reportedly reportedly caught the gator with his bare hands along Ranchwood Street in Palm City one night back in August. The pair eventually released the gator alive. Kepke told the cops that he had had a couple beers but wasn't too drunk when the incident took place. (laughs) <laughs> Kepke and Osborne were put in the Martin County Jail for their actions. Their bond was set at 5000 and 2000 respectively. They both bailed out on the same day. Uh, I... <laughs> no words. Also, one of the... I saw their mug shots and one of them <laughs> kind of looked like your ex. <gasps> Ooh, oh, no. <laughs> Which I could totally see. Um, <laughs> uh, 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 uh. I have another, also Florida. From this one also is from wtfflorida.com. Mm-hmm. Callahan from Callahan, Florida. A Florida teen reportedly chased her grandfather with a knife after being told she was not allowed to eat any more tomatoes. <laughs> 19-year-old Katie Jade Gates became angry that she was not allowed to eat more than her fair share of tomatoes, according to the Nassau County Sheriff's Office. The grandmother said that Gates threw a fit and became disrespectful towards others in the house. Gates first threw a pack of cigarettes at her 73-year-old great-grandmother, striking her in the eye. When she grabbed a knife and started waving it at her grandfather, deputies said. Grandpa ran away and Gates reportedly chased him with the knife in hand. And she, quote, threatened to stab him in the face and began poking the knife towards his face, nearly cutting him. The news report states, Gates was very, uh, sorry, Gates was arrested and charged with two felonies, aggravated assault with a deadly weapon and aggravated battery on a victim over the age of 65. She lives with grandparents. I don't know why they put that at the end, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck? Girl loves her tomatoes. Uh, Shit. I do love love tomatoes, though. (laughs) We'll get you. Okay, here's one. Confronting a family member is never easy. I got this from entrepreneur.com. Mm. Confronting a family member is never easy, but this may have been taking it too far. After Ma- Mason Tackett of Floyd County, Kentucky, caught his cousin stealing his cheese grater, an empty <laughs> bottle of Lysol, and some soap from his home, Tackett what? allegedly held Hagen's at gunpoint while he called the cops. Uh, on some trash? Uh, a cheese grater... Sorry. An empty Go. bottle of Lysol and some soap. Hello. 
Do you want to steal your cousin's soap because you just ran out? Well, think, worry no more. If you live in the continental United States, you can get delivery of Humblebee Herbal's wonderful soaps. Okay, wait, here's another one. One more. Ready? Mm-hmm. Everyone knows that the highlight of a Costco trip is always the free samples, oh, which yes. I have been missing lately. I know. It's so sad. Recently, two men got a little too worked up over the free food. In South Carolina, police were called to a Costco store after two elderly men started swinging fists in the sample line while a 70-year-old Costco customer patiently waited his turn in line for a free slice of cheese. A 72-year-old man in a Hawaiian shirt strutted in front of him and stole his sample. No, you Shortly can't do after, that. while in line for a cheeseburger sample, the Hawaiian shirt-clad man did it again, coming in front of the same man and stealing his piece of meat. Nope. Once is an accident. Twice, you're deliberately cutting the line. Instead of brushing it off, angry words were exchanged, fists were thrown, and the cops were called shit oh my god yeah you can't steal a man's cheese and his cheeseburger while wearing a hawaiian shirt that's like i bet that i bet they were all sneaking around or sneaking around costco wearing their costco white tennis shoes they for sure had the white tennis shoes i'm sure he got that hawaiian (laughs) shirt from costco as well oh sure and they were there for lunch and then the dude just cuts him twice I was at Costco today, and I really, really missed the samples. I miss the samples. I hope we get it's not there the same. again at some point. Mm-hmm. How am I supposed to know if it tastes good? How am I supposed to know if I want to buy it? That's what it is. How am I supposed to know if I'm going to want to get, like, ten before they run out? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Anyway. 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 Thanks for tuning in another week. We appreciate every one of you. Yay, thank you. Um, we will be back next week with, for some more fucked up stuff. Rate, review, um, subscribe. Please, please check us out. Please uh, email us anything you ever want and more <gasps> yeah. at CrimeAnyPodcast. Give Podcast. us some too, y'all. com. Um, I'm having issues with the Instagram, so I apologize. Uh... I have to figure out why it's not letting me post anything. So hopefully that'll be figured out. Yes. Um, And once again, thanks, Mom. Hope this was long enough for you and your needs. (laughs) Um, And no, we will not give you a secret episode a week. You got to be patient like the rest of us. Yeah, because we can barely get this one out a week. Ain't nobody got time for that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Thanks. We will speak at you next week. All right. Goodbye. Bye. This is very concerning.